Hello to all my listeners, and welcome to yet another episode of The Mark Geis Show. This is Mark Geis, your host, and uh, I'm going to get right into it. I've got kind of a grab bag of things to talk about today. Uh, first, there's something I want to discuss that I saw just an hour or two before doing this podcast, and then I'll take the majority of the time to have kind of my uh, my somewhat unified discussion Uh but this, this first thing I want to discuss, it comes from an article I was reading, and it's quoting John Kerry in a discussion that he was having uh, with an audience at the India Institute of Technology in Delhi, India. And basically what he was talking about is governing and how it's harder now than it was in the past because it's harder to get your message out and to craft your message and get it to the populace. And I've talked about this over and over again. If, if you haven't noticed already, there are some overarching themes to this podcast. And I try to connect those things over and over again and take the current issues and what's going on today and tie them back to those same themes. Because I think everything that we're seeing, there are overarching connections between all of those, all of those different things and among those among those different issues and among those different stories. So if we can t- if we can kind of parse things back to their highest level and to their core, I think they fit in with those themes. And that's the point I'm trying to drive across. That's the reason why I'm doing this. So first I'll quote John Kerry and give you exactly what he said and then give my analysis of it. So Kerry said, governing is harder. This is all quoted. It is harder today to build consensus around an issue than it used to be. When I was growing up in America, we also had only three major, four major television stations in the United States. So when I was a college student, the president of the United States, somebody from the press office would call the media, one or two networks, and say, the president wants to talk to the nation tonight. They'd block out a half hour, and that was it. Everybody watched it. That doesn't happen today. If a president wants to talk to the nation, he or she has to go out and fight to find all kinds of different venues, which is why the president of the United States goes on The View and goes on David Letterman and goes on The Night Show and goes on whatever in order to be able to talk to people in segments. And it takes a lot longer to build it up, and you still have trouble getting people to be able to assimilate and process facts. So governing is harder, and it's true everywhere that governing is harder. So what carries lamenting is the fact that people have choice now and they have virtually limitless ways to get their information and virtually limitless perspectives from which that information is going to be filtered and given to them. And he's saying this is a bad thing because now we can't have consensus. And he wants consensus because it makes it much easier to govern. It makes it much easier to control people when they only have a... they only have a few choices from where they can get their information. It, it, it's easy to craft your message and get it to the people. And because the people don't even know that other viewpoints are out there, then they're going to eat it, eat it hook, line, and sinker. And you don't really need to work very hard to get them to accept that message. So he's saying this is a bad thing. And I, I understand the perspective. when you When you think of things through... A progressive mindset and I'm, I'm talking progressive mindset in terms of 
kind of the the 20th century American version of progressivism, which has been increasing centralization of power, which has been increasing the power that that the federal government has. That's been part of the the progressive agenda from the beginning of the the 20th century onward. I know progressivism has taken on some some different meanings and maybe it's had some different meanings historically, but really when I say progressive, um, a progressive mindset, that's what I'm talking about is centralizing power. That's that's what Kerry wants. That makes Kerry's job far easier. And I argue that it's that's bad for the American people. And that having increased choice, while yes, it does make some things difficult, some people only find things that cater exactly to their their viewpoint on things. And yes, maybe maybe that can be dangerous because uh, people can people can just have this this echo chamber where their views are are continually reinforced. They never hear what anybody else has to say. I understand the downsides of that. So I'm I'm not trying to downplay that. But I think that this trend and Carrie sees it and all the politicians see it lends itself perfectly to decentralization of power. And it makes it more and more obvious that centralizing power is not a sustainable long-term strategy either in this country or really in any country worldwide. It's going to be impossible as, as information is easier to get from a multitude of sources. And already look at it now. And and what I always come back to Twitter being a good representation of this, but really where you can filter now your newsfeed to the people whose voices you want to hear and get their perspective on the news and where anybody with an internet connection can really be a media personality. You know, you can start a podcast like this with virtually no startup costs, get your voice out there, and you can influence what what people think. And so as that happens more and more, it's going to make it impossible you know, virtually impossible, if not absolutely impossible, to have any sort of strong central government for a country like this that expands across an entire continent that has over 300 million people and has people all over that think completely differently about how best to be governed. I think it is impossible to, to have the system that we have now with increasing federal control and for that not to cause huge conflicts. And I think ultimately, if, if we don't figure out how to, how to buck the trend of increasing centralization and move more toward decentralization, toward more power at the state and local levels, then we will eventually see violent conflicts. And I think that's a big function of why it, it seems like now there are more violent clashes now than there was in recent history. Because people are realizing this. People are starting to feel like I don't have control and I'm not being governed the way that I want to be governed because so much of this power is so removed from me. It feels like no matter what I do, I, I don't have a voice in, in how, how I'm being controlled. So I think that's what the, the John Kerry's of the world, the establishments who have so much to gain by centralizing power. Just, just look at Washington, D.C. and how... Most of the richest counties in the United States are in the D.C. metro area because it's, it's great for people like this. Carrie came from a rich family, married an even richer 
wife that, that came from a, a fabulously rich family and he, he he went to the elite schools he has been in dc and has profited handsomely from that people like john Kerry have everything to gain from centralizing power and having a place where wealth can be extracted from the greater country and the bigger the country is the more wealth there is to be extracted so he wants things to be like that he wants us to not have choice and not just to not have choice in terms of news but not having choice in terms of health care options education options all of that all of those types of agendas that the, that the progressive types have and really the left entirely has has adopted these ideals but taking away our choice helps them it hurts the average person it hurts the rest of us it makes our standards of living lower having less choice and having less control over our own lives but it helps the john carries of the world and the john carries of the world are the epitome of the establishment so i just wanted to, i wanted to take a minute i thought this this fit in perfectly with some of the other discussions I've had on, on this podcast and really what a lot of people who, who see these trends, these overarching trends going on, who, who are realizing what's happening in such a short period of time and, and how this availability of information is changing the world. People are realizing this and Kerry realized that he's, he's cloaking it in this language like, oh, you know, we want, we want consensus and all we're trying to do is govern effectively. But that's not really why he he thinks this or why he's pointing this out as being an issue it's because it hurts him and hurts types like him who have profited so much from the system being the way it is and who would love nothing more than to see continued centralization of power in washington dc and in other countries it would be the same thing they they want to continue to see centralization of power in uh brussels in the eu or you know in in any other capital city around the world, people have the same kind of motivation, the John Kerry's of, of those countries. So that's what I wanted to talk about first, but really the, the bigger discussion I wanted to have, and this wasn't sparked by any particular news story or anything, but it was sparked by a series of discussions I had with a, uh, a self-proclaimed socialist. Uh, he's a big-time Bernie supporter. Now he's gone over. Uh, he's he, he's now a Jill Stein supporter. Uh, he he calls himself a socialist, but it's incredible that the ideas that he has and the way that he thinks the world should work are basically perfectly perfectly compatible with what the left has become and kind of the, the standard issues on the progressive left. So those issues are universal health care. You know, you, you know them all. That Social Security can't be touched. That these entitlement programs have saved countless lives. And if anything, we need to expand them. Free college. Um, those types of issues that have, been, that have been harped on time and time again by the progressive left. But they are the same ideas that self-avowed socialists have. Basically, that that they have the right to the to the fruits of of the fruits of the labor of everybody else, and to redistribute it as they please, and they expect people to to just take this. Um, 
and my biggest issue with with all this with all this redistribution is the fact that when you try to speak out against it they have these emotional responses and these personal attacks and and he's guilty of it and really anybody is guilty of it you say oh well, you know that's that's what you need to live in a society don't you see all the benefits that are that are coming from this oh you must hate poor people or you must hate young people or you know whatever there there are a lot of different personal attacks you can have to 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 throw at somebody who says I don't think it's just for my property to be stolen from me and and be redistributed in all these different ways and you know I may tolerate a certain smaller percentage of my property being stolen but it has gotten to obscene levels and it's gotten to levels where now we almost don't realize all the property that's being stolen from us but I also want to look at this from a young person's perspective and really like a young productive member of society and how many ways that we are being bilked in order to fund all these different entitlement programs. I'm just, I'm sick of it. And I wanted to have a, a discussion just to, just to kind of rant about it. And I'm going to throw some of what I talked about with him into this, but this is kind of a, a culmination of a lot of different things that, I, that I've read and heard and just being attacked basically for being a productive member of society and thinking it's unjust that so much of my wealth needs to be confiscated. So much of my income needs to be confiscated in order to finance these redis redistributionist schemes. So First, I want to talk about Obamacare because that's that's been in the news and Aetna is pulling out of a lot of the state exchanges, uh, a substantial portion of the co-ops that were formed, the, the nonprofit co-ops that thought they could they could function better than for-profit businesses have folded and all of those may be in danger in the in the pretty near future. And we're seeing this is what everybody, everybody that knows how economics works Everybody that looks at common, looks at economics from a common sense, understandable perspective that, okay, when you force insurance companies to insure people that they otherwise wouldn't insure, and you don't allow them to price those customers differently based on their pre-existing conditions, then inevitably you're going to force the the already insured customers or the already insurable customers to need to pay more in order to cover in order to subsidize the costs of insuring those other people at lower costs than they otherwise would be insured at. It was inevitably going to happen. Premiums were going to rise for people that were already insured. That was going to happen. And I don't get how people argued against it. You, you can't, by fiat, stop that from happening. It's impossible. Or if by fiat, if you, if you try to impose price controls then those companies would go out of business. They're already operating in a way where they make enough profit to survive, but they are in a competitive business. And if that profit's eroded away, they are no longer going to operate. Those kind of things were inevitable. But also what Obamacare has done, and I'm, I'm talking kind of more from a personal perspective, from where I am in the age range of the populace. I'm, I'm 24. Um, I 
don't really need health insurance. Uh, I like to have it kind of as a catastrophic backup in case something something was to happen to me, like a car accident or I was to get really sick. So I have a, I have a high deductible plan. But even the cost of those high deductible plans or those catastrophic, I mean, first of all, many of those catastrophic plans are unlawful under Obamacare. They're not enough to satisfy the requirements and to stop from you needing to pay a fine, which that takes away personal choice right there. I think it's a violation of your choice of how much do I want to be insured if I don't think I need that level of insurance, if I don't think I need those particular things to be insured, that should be my choice to not have that level of insurance. So first of all, that level of choice has been taken away. But next, even the high deductible plans that are lawful under Obamacare have gotten more expensive. And so taking another step further, young, healthy people have have seen their, their premiums rise substantially to cover the costs for the old and the unhealthy. And we lament so much. We, we talk about the student loan burden that young people are under. Uh, we talk about how young people now can't, can't buy houses as early as they used to be able to. How all these things about how young people don't have it as, don't have it as good as their parents did. And how this is the first generation in American history that's, that looks like it will have a worse standard of living than its parents. Yet we have these types of programs where the young are being harmed and clearly being harmed and are being forced to, to, forced to buy something that maybe otherwise they wouldn't buy at all or something that they would have bought is now more expensive than it was before because their premiums need to be higher in order to cover the costs of the subsidized premiums for the old and the sick. And if, if we really want to help young people, and I think there are some people out there on the left and right that genuinely think that what, what they're calling for I'm, I'll focus more on the left. What they're calling for will help young people. They're talking about uh, extremely subsidized or free uh, college, uh, student, abolishing student loans, forgiving student loan debt. They think all those things are, are going to help people. Well, this is something that would help, that has harmed young people substantially. And where the left then takes the discussion is, well, then we should just have a single payer system. Well, that is even worse. That is going to put even more of the burden on the young and the healthy to finance said program. It's just going to take this to another level. So Obamacare has been a disaster for young people. And I know, I know poor young people who you know, have just gotten their first job or who are, are barely working and are barely able to make ends meet that have to make the calculation, do I buy health insurance or do I pay this fine at the end of the year? Do I pay a, a fine to the government, a, a tax or whatever you want to call it? It's, it's really a fine, an unconstitutional fine um, for not having health insurance. And, and that's just an important thing that you're either you're now a captive customer you're either forced to buy something or you have to pay a fine because you don't have it and something that that really just should affect you personally um further so i want to talk more from from a young person's perspective why 
I'm, I'm sick of all this. Social security is, is a topic that came up several times during my discussions with this uh, self-proclaimed socialist. And he was, it really came up first talking about FDR. And I was trying to say FDR was one of the worst presidents in American history, maybe the worst president of the 20th century. Though there's some pretty good, pretty good candidates for for those titles. But he, he kept saying that, well, FDR, FDR uh, fed and, and kept roofs over millions of people's heads through Social Security. Like, you know, like Roosevelt was financing it himself. That's how, first how that makes that sound. Like, like Roosevelt personally was the one donating or financing this. But no, all, I mean, all that Social Security is, is it, it's been a way that has been, it's a way to steal money from one set of people and give it to another. That wasn't how it was sold to the American people. It was sold to the American people as, you know, we're going to take a percentage of your earnings and hold on to it and invest it in in safe means and then disperse it back to you when you retire. But that's not what it is. What it's become now entirely is working people pay taxes and it's then given basically immediately to retirees. And I have a hard time feeling much sympathy for older people as a whole in this system. I think about from my perspective and the perspective of my peers, we, we have 12.4% of our income taken to finance Social Security. I know that on your paychecks it only shows 6.2%, and that's assuming you make under, I think it's 110, 115,000. You have the full you know, a full 6.2% of your income taken to finance or as a, as a payroll tax, but your employer also pays a 6.2% payroll tax and they factor that into their compensation for you. So really it's, it, it's part of your income it doesn't show up on your pay stubs, but when your employer is making the calculation of what, what am I paying this person? What does it cost me to employ this person? That is included. That tax is included as part of that calculation. And if that tax was not around, you would be paid that extra amount. That would be going to you um, because it's part of their calculation of what can I pay this person where I'm paying them slightly less than what their productivity to me is so that um, I keep this, this quality productive employee and uh, at the same time, I'm making a profit on this person. Uh, so really 12.4% of your income, assuming you make under that $110,000, $115,000 threshold, it's, it, it's that percentage, is going to finance the Social Security system. And for people my age who may have been out in the workforce only a few years, and we're just trying to build up a nest egg. We're trying to build up a down payment to buy a house. We're trying to pay off student loans. We're trying to to uh, to buy a decent car to to get us from point A to point B. Like you're trying to knock off items on the list that that you really want to have to improve your quality of life. We're building to that point right now when we're our age. Older people, retired people, have had their entire lifetimes have had 40, 45, 50 years of of working time to build up those things that they need to build up a nest egg to retire ultimately that's a 
that's a personal thing. That's something you need to handle on your own. And I understand there are extenuating circumstances where, you know, some people haven't been able to work. I, those aren't the, the types of people I'm targeting in this rant. But people that have worked their entire lives should have been able to save enough to be able to have a decent life in retirement. It is not hard to do if you save if you save 10-15% of your income on an annual basis. And if you chose not to do so, that it's not it should not be the responsibility of young people just starting out trying to do that to finance your to finance your mistakes basically to now subsidize you for the mistakes that you made for not having enough personal responsibility to save while you were working to plan ahead while you were working it is unjust to steal from those people that are now working in order to finance you and then it's unjust once i reach that age once i reach the time assuming if social security is, if social security is even still around which i I have grave doubts that it will be. And if it is, I think it will be very different. The benefits will be less. It would be unjust for me to expect young people to to pay for me and for money to be stolen from young people that are working in order to finance my retirement when I've had 40, 50 years at the least to, to plan and to save. It, it would be immoral of me to expect that. It's also immoral to think that just because I I paid into that system and I had my money stolen from me, that now it gives me the right to steal from somebody else. So I think the whole system of Social Security is is immoral and unjust. And you can make the same arguments a lot of, about a lot of other redistributionist schemes, but Social Security seems to be the most cited, if you criticize Social Security you get the most backlash that oh you must hate you must want old people to be eating cat food which by the way if if you're relying on social security as your sole income in retirement you're probably not far off from eating cat food because the benefits are not that much despite the huge taxes placed on all working people the benefits still aren't at a level that really can sustain a high quality of life. But ultimately the responsibility is on you as an individual to think ahead, to plan ahead, to save, to invest, and to be in a position where I'm not now a burden on society when I reach the point where I can no longer work. And if I am a burden on society, then I need to continue to work. That's personal responsibility 101. But like I said before, to expect that because, because money was stolen from me, to pay for somebody else that now I have a right to steal from somebody else I think it's just immoral on the face of it I think not enough people understand how social security works or understand how dire straits social security is in and they think it's just like any other retirement plan where any other any other uh, pension plan where like a, a private pension plan where I invest I a certain amount of money is taken out for me while I work and that's being all put away and being invested in a large pool and then that money is now enough by the time a conservative rate of return is, is factored in that amount of money will be there for me to take out and get a certain amount each year in 
retirement when I when I reach that point. And that's how a pension system is supposed to work. But Social Security doesn't work that way. It's simply just redistribution where the money that I put in isn't going to still be there when I retire. The money that I'm putting in is immediately being paid out to others. So, so Social Security was a huge point of contention in that discussion. And I was trying to make that point that first of all it's immoral and and to try to say that fdr is responsible for for feeding and clothing millions of people and that without social security people would be dying in the streets i think is completely disingenuous like so many of the arguments that were made in our discussions um free college we can also go into a little bit uh that's it doesn't fit in quite as well with with uh talking about young people subsidizing older people in the society but I think the arguments for uh, for free public college are disastrous and I've, I've talked about it before uh, but I don't know if anybody saw what Hillary Clinton had to say what you know what what her uh, platform is on, on this whole issue but it is it's it's pretty interesting and i didn't see it until our discussion and he (laughs) there were other people involved in the discussion so it so it wasn't just you know him him giving me this like like it was going to be something that i agreed with but there were other people that were involved in the conversation and and he posted that there were other people that supported free college and said oh look what look what bernie did he brought hillary to the left on this issue further to the left on this issue and look at the impact that Bernie's had and saying it in a in a positive way but th- this kind of scared me and I, I tried to make the point to him I'll I'll read the the specific parts of, of her platform on her website but talking about just using executive action and how oh yeah yeah the president can just do this um, can can have these specific executive actions and that's fine because we're doing it for a good reason. It's fine. Uh, this is the specific. Let's see. Let me find the quote here. The specific quote where I tried to say this is this is scary. So first she she said I'm up for I want free college, um, cutting interest rates on uh, interest cutting interest rates for future borrowers uh, borrowers can refinance loans at, at current rates, uh, a fund for historically black colleges and universities, Hispanic serving institutions, uh, community colleges offer free tuition. Uh, by 2021, families with income up to $125,000 will pay no tuition at in-state four-year public colleges. It's a lot of crazy stuff in there, but this is the one that really scared me. Uh, Hillary, this is a quote, Hillary will take immediate executive action to offer a three-month moratorium on student loan payments to all federal loan borrowers. That will give every borrower a chance to consolidate their loans, sign up for income-based repayment plans, and take advantage of opportunities to reduce their monthly interest payments and fees. So the fact that she's saying, oh yeah, the, the president can just violate the contracts that 100, 000, hundreds of thousands of people have, have signed. It may even be millions. I'm not sure of the total number of people with student loans outstanding in this country. But that 
by executive action alone, first of all, not even saying that the federal government has any sort of power to do this, which I absolutely do not think they do, but say just by immediate executive action upon entering office, we can say for the next three months, nobody has to pay their student loans. None of those contracts are valid for the next three months. That is scary stuff. And that's the kind of power that with every presidential administration that comes in, there is more and more precedent for this kind of this kind of executive action. And what this guy was saying, like, well, no, she's just trying to do good. But what I was trying to say, even if you agree with what the president is trying to do and they take executive action this way, once you've set that press that precedent, all it takes is for somebody that you despise to get into office to run roughshod over your idea of how you want to be governed. So I use the example, you know, he hates Trump, called Trump a racist. I said, imagine if Donald Trump then becomes president in, in 2020. And now he's able to use this precedent of executive action that, that Bush, Obama, Hillary, and, you know, let alone going back further than that, have, have all put into place. Now he's able to use that power vested in the executive to just write executive action on, say, immigration. Or I, mean, I was trying to think of issues that he would completely disagree with Trump and would, and would hate Trump on. You know, he, he could do the FDR-type internment camps, all based on executive action, based on precedence. So it's, it's a really, really slippery slope to, to, to say that, oh, because I agree with, with what this person is doing, with, with what this president is doing, I'm going to support it in this isolated case, but it, it's, it all builds on itself. And the reason why our government was built the way that it was back in the founding generation was to limit powers so that, it, so that there wouldn't be this kind of huge decision to make between one side or another, where one side couldn't run roughshod on the other because there were limited powers at stake. And there were limited things that the federal government could do. That was the whole point of the Constitution. One of the main points of the Constitution was to limit the power of the federal government and within the federal government really limit the power of the executive. Not saying that we need that we want a weak executive, but we don't want a strong executive in the sense that they basically create legislation from their desk. We want it to be we want them to be a strong executive in terms of checking the legislative branch. But now the whole the whole concept of a strong executive has become things like this this type of executive action these executive orders that both bush and obama have signed many of and signing statements that that virtually become law just due to being proclaimed by the president this kind of stuff is dangerous and all it's going to take for even for somebody that that loves obama and and loves hillary all it's going to take is for the other side to put in somebody like trump and they're going to see they're going to see the kind of system that they created and why it's so dangerous and why the founding generation was so prescient to put those kind of limits into place but they're never going to realize that until it happens and we're going to continue to have these these simple debates that really don't get down to the crux of any of these issues but 
I'm I'm pretty scared about the, the way that this whole presidential election has trended, and I, I really don't think there's a difference in my life between if Hillary or Trump become president. I think both of them are going to be bad. Both of them are talking about expanding the power of the executive branch, expanding the power of the federal government, talking about fixing your problems with top-down solutions. Both of them are talking about that, and those are things I think that are going to Either way, no matter which kinds of top-down approaches are, are made from from on high, it's going to make my life worse. And I think it's going to make all of our lives worse, except for the, the people that benefit directly from various transfer programs or from whatever actual programs are put into place. But on the whole, it's going to make us worse off. And that's something that I don't think I'm ever going to, to get into the heads of of a self-proclaimed socialist and trying to talk about really the fundamental fallacies that they make and assuming that basically a saying that government's creating a, a universal health care system means that everybody is going to get quality health care that's a huge fallacy right there and that that's what their whole arguments are based on but trying to say that market-based solutions are the ways to provide the most benefit to the most people and have been in every industry if you look at every way that our lives have improved the most in the last 20 30 years in in most of our lifetimes it's been in terms of of electronics in terms of automobiles uh, and specifically in electronics you know tvs computers cell phones and all both of those are pretty deregulated industries, pretty free markets. There's, there aren't government cell phone companies creating cell phones and selling them to you. Um, there aren't government cell phone providers. There really aren't government automobile companies. You know, though, though the automobile bailouts uh, back during the during the Great Recession distorted the free market in automobiles and the cash for clunkers disaster, those kind of things, but. At the end, you know, at the end of the day, those aren't. There's not a government plant creating cars, and that's what we're buying. There's there's not a centralized car industry. Uh, there are a lot of different a lot of different companies vying for our business, and, and those are the places where we've seen the most improvement in our quality of living. But if you look at the areas of the economy where the government has been has been most pervasive, and I point at healthcare public education, uh, higher education, those have all been disasters. We've seen soaring costs, people not getting quality returns on their investments, and people wonder why this is the case, and the calls are always for, we need we need a bigger government solution for this. This can't be left to the free market, because look at how costs have, have soared, but the costs have soared because of high government intervention into those sectors to start with and I don't know what it takes to get that message across I think it's pretty simple if if somebody's just willing to listen to you and willing to actually look at the numbers and look at what's happened in deregulated versus highly regulated industries it becomes obvious but people have their their preconceived notions their arguments their personal attacks that they use every time somebody makes a certain point that's very difficult to get that across so 
I don't really know what the solution is from our perspective to try to to try to improve things. I think just being educated about these things, being able to talk about them, being able to show that yeah, I'm coming from a from a moral perspective and I want the most people to be the most well off. I'm the one that's coming with coming with the populist uh you know, the populist alternative to what's currently going on and the current system has hurt so many people. So I keep getting that message out, I guess, is the only thing that we can do and trying to tailor it to particular audiences based on what their preconceived notions are. But those kind of discussions just really frustrate me and ultimately scare me because I know so many people think that way. You want to think it's just a small group of people that think that way, that think like socialists, but it's a huge portion of the population, especially among young people. It's a huge portion of young people that think that way and it's very difficult to have any sort of conversation with a lot of my peers it it really is but i'm going to keep trying to fight the good fight i hope you're doing the same we're going to keep trying to inform people and hopefully hopefully show that all of this is interconnected and they're all part of the same trends and if we can get things down to their cores I think we can get that message out and get it across, and eventually we we will win this battle of ideas. So thank you for listening. Kind of long episode today, uh, but I had to rant about this. I've been wanting to for a couple days now, and I was able to get it out. So appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Please tell your friends, subscribe, uh, and I'll talk to you soon.